0: Hello and welcome to the Green Minds podcast, showcasing the science, stories and solutions behind climate change with Phoebe Scott, Alex Miller, Lottie Flaschkis and Guy Wilkinson. Hello and welcome to another episode of IB Green Minds. Joining me today is Richard Templer, Hoffman Professor of Chemistry at Imperial College London and Director of Innovation at the Grantham Institute. Welcome to the podcast.
1: I'm delighted to be with you, Lottie.
0: So to get started, I wanted to ask what your area of expertise is within the field of chemistry and what drew you towards climate-related innovation?
1: (laughs) Okay, so that's a loaded question. Um, I've I've been a dilettante for the whole of my life. Um, I've done all sorts of different things. Um, In fact, I've trained as a physicist I don't have a chemistry A-level. Um, so by b- becoming the Hoffman Professor of Chemistry was probably my greatest feat of, 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 of leisure demand ever. Um, and I'm very proud that I am the the, the, the the chair because it was given to me by my colleagues who are wonderful, lovely people, and all of them are proper chemists, unlike me. Um, so what is my expertise? My, my, my research expertise, um, the, 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 what, what led to what I do now um, was membrane biophysics. So I became an expert on molecules called lipids, which are little fatty molecules um, that make the the membrane that that describes, delimits the cells in all of our bodies, in plants, in humans. Um, And of course, it's those fat molecules that eventually become the, the the gases, the coal, uh, the the oil that we burn, um, and although I wasn't looking at any of that, I was doing eff- effectively uh, things to do with human health, to do with cancer and so on, and understanding how the membrane worked with that. Um, but because I was working with with these fatty molecules, it lent itself to, well, could you replace? The um, the stuff that you're digging up from the ground and burning, with stuff that you don't dig up, that you you produce um, from sunlight, and then you just use, and then you produce with sunlight again. So that you're not you're not putting excess CO2 into the atmosphere. And um, yeah, it was that the kind of if you like gave me the scientific credibility, What gave me the authority to do what I was doing. Was I was the head of the department. And I had a reputation for doing interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary science and getting people together around problems. So I was asked to do various things by the college, which were in one way or another related to climate change. And by the time I finished being head of department, I realized I didn't want to become a vice chancellor, even if I would have been any good at it. Um, And I had to make a decision about what I wanted to do. And I decided I want to do something about climate change. I don't want to do the science because the science seems absolutely transparently obvious to me I want to do something about solutions and um, the college gave me the opportunity to do that um, and here I am now doing it
0: and what does your role as director of innovation at the Grantham Institute involve
1: it's yeah innovation is such such a vapid topic it's it's like it's not it's not really very well defined. I can, you know, if you ask me about the research I did, I can be very precise. The innovation stuff is to do with um, helping others to take their inventions and make them into, um, into things that, that can be used in the real world. So The, the definition that I use of innovation is, is, um, comes actually from a former colleague in the business school, Um, And it's just ideas usefully applied. That's it. So it sounds really simple. Helping people to do that is actually really quite difficult. It's it's not a science, it's an art. Um, And it's an art that edges over into business. But because the, the innovation that we can help at Imperial is essentially... Um, technical innovation. That's what we're, we're strong, obviously, in, in, in science and engineering and medicine. Um, and we have got a business school. I understand that. Uh, we, haven't, we didn't have a business school for many, many years. Um, so our history is all in engineering and science. Um, so we're good at that. And uh, we're arrogant sods, all right? So what I learned as my time as head of department was that I had a, a handful of spin-outs of my own um, was that we all thought because we were clever clogs that we could run media yeah, businesses. I mean, you know, come on, I can do quantum chemistry. <laughs> I should be able to do a business easy. And of course, it's not true because it's a very different kind of practice. And so I became, I, I, I gained humility in f- having failed to spin out businesses as well. Um, and I learned that there are people out there who had done it properly and I learned from them And I ended up working with them. So what I do now as Director of Innovation is to help startups start up in our area. And I bring the technical networks and intelligence and knowledge and so on. And um, my colleague, Naveed Chowdhury, brings the business now um, to the game. And um, we have been incredibly successful. So... Um, two-thirds of all of the startups that come to us end up getting uh, seed investment, an average of about £3 million. Um, and that level of, of performance is as good as any accelerator program anywhere in the world, uh, notwithstanding that we're doing climate and the others are doing digital and so on. So we're really very successful. And we've got a number of companies that um, have really grown. So there are uh, 60 businesses out there now that are are employing over – I don't actually quite know how many people, by the way, but certainly over 1,500 people are employed. Um, And we gave them the first kind of bit of help. So that's the big main thing we're doing. But the other thing we're doing is to try and create the environment – or an environment and basically a London environment where innovation for climate action can flourish. And that's a much more, I, I'm not gonna do the details, because we haven't got enough time, but that's about creating um, networks of with purpose, you know, networks of people and organizations that all want to gather around and want to make this new economy happen. And it's my belief that um, a global city like London can only remain a global city if it's shaping the future. That's essentially what defines the great cities is that that's where people come together to shape the future. And the future is about a low carbon, um, resilient future um, where, where biological ecosystems can flourish and humans can live contented lives and if a city can't help that to happen it's really not going to survive as a city and here we are in a city with you know universities like university college london king's college and of course imperial and lsc and places like that we've got this huge wealth in this city so that's what we're doing the director of innovation at the moment that's me is trying to make that happen so we've set up a center for climate Change, innovation, in collaboration with the Royal Institution. So it's going to be in Albemarle Street. The Royal Institution is, by the way, where the the discovery of the greenhouse gas gas effect happened. So we're we're we're, we're coming home. We're coming home. We're going to solve the problems that we identified over 150 years ago, and we've got all interested organisations gathered around us. But it's got to grow, grow, big, much bigger than it currently is.
0: And from your experience. Are there any common characteristics that promising early stage companies that are set up to tackle climate change um, tend to have, or are they all quite varied?
1: Um, what they do, you know, the actual technology or the, ser- the product or the service, it, it varies a lot. But I don't think that's what you're asking me. You're asking me about well, what are the people inside who make this happen like, and and there. Um, There's huge commonality. In fact, we the business school ran a PhD, which studied us and our startups. So I know an awful lot. (laughs) There's an entire tome of study on us. Um, But I'd put it really simply: you've got to be passionate about making a difference, Um, and in our particular case, and doing good. You know, we're previously there've been quite a lot of entrepreneurs, and there still are a lot of entrepreneurs. Who aren't doing good? They're just making money, and some of them get very famous for it, and then get vilified for being very wealthy. J. P. Morgan, for example, is a good as a good example of somebody who made huge amounts of money, but he was effectively a criminal. There's now an entire bank named after him. <laughs> named after him he founded you know which is very respectable now but he wasn't exactly a very respectable man when it comes right down to it so uh driven by purpose a passion to make a difference and in particular to make a difference with respect to climate change it's number one number two is is um a willingness to go on you know, to, to you you get a lot of knockbacks, a lot of a lot of things happen, and you have to get over it. and You have to move on. You have to. So the persistence and the willingness to 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 put the work in to make things happen that's that's the second thing. The third thing is maybe a little less obvious, and it's what I call agility, which is a sort of strange combination of of things. So you will fail in, in small little mini ways all the time. You've got this wonderful idea, you present it to somebody and they go, yeah, not really interested in that. And you've got to listen to what they've just said to you, take it on board and make use of it. In other words, don't just turn around and go, well, they're just wrong. So you need to be a, a degree of humility, not not over, not huge amounts, but enough humility to go, "Okay, I'm hearing something, I need to listen to this. And you need to be agile enough that you can say, okay, how can I take what I've just heard and change what I'm doing in order to still be true to myself, true to what I want to make happen, but to be successful, to actually happen in the real world. And what we found is that people who are not very mentally agile, you know, who who won't listen to what people are saying and won't make changes, all fail. All. 100% correlation. Um, so those are the, I mean, there are other things as well, but those are the things that characterise them. Um, atmospherically, what you find is that being around people with startups is hugely energizing. Everybody, so that's the other thing I can say. A gaggle of startups, spend an hour with them and it makes you feel rejuvenated. So I, I'm basically, um, I'm basically a vampire. I'm a vampire. I rejuvenate myself by, by having lots of startups around me.
0: And is there a particular point on the journey from a group of people having an idea to going through the funding rounds, etc., that you've found to be particularly tricky?
1: Yes, uh, I think it's the phase that I was talking about. So it's 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 this phase that's that's given the name customer discovery. It, it's I mean it's it's a sort of an understood word, but it's maybe not really adequate for describing what's going on. So the startup has to learn to have conversations, true conversations with organizations or people who may be important to the development of their business, maybe their customer. that may also be an ally as well, but um, let's just for the moment concentrate on some organization that may be your customer and you have to learn not to just barge in there and say i've got this fantastic thing it's called the biro It will replace your quill um you know you want to buy this biro and the the guy's quill manufacturer might not be too pleased to know that his quill manufacturing outlet is going to just be caned by your new technology and you're doing it the wrong way around what you need to find out is What is getting in the way of quill manufacturers really expanding their business? You know, what is it that people don't like about quills? What would they prefer if they could dream it up? And uh, learning how to ask the questions in a way that really allows you to understand the market is a skill in itself, and the second thing is, you have to be able to listen properly and understand and interpret what's being said, and then when you've got enough feedback, you need to know when you do the famous pivoting, right, which is to change your business model, to to enable you to be successful. So doing those three things is very very taxing. It's a it's a really emotional roller coaster, and some startups don't survive it, and I would say. That's the first hard, really hard thing that they have to face up to. If you're on our, if you're on our accelerator program, the, the greenhouse, um, we can train you how to pitch well. All right, we can, we can, we can help you to make a really good case. We can help you to do the life cycle analysis. We can help you to understand SDGs and all the other things that you need to do. You know, the legal stuff patenting and those are all kind of mechanical they're not for clever people they're not hard it's all the human things about it's my idea and i'm gonna have to change it. i don't know what i want to does my partner really want the same outcomes as me because i want to be a millionaire and she seems to want to just be like saint joan I, i don't know whether she's the right partner for me all those things are the things that really get in the way raising the money for a good idea with a good team somebody will give you money all right they really will that's not the problem
0: that's really interesting I'd like to move on and talk a bit about greenhouse gas removals because this is an area that's attracting increasing attention and will of course require innovation not only technical but in other spheres such as policy and business so to start could you explain what greenhouse gas removal is and why it is important
1: So, greenhouse gas removal is the removal of the greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere. They're out there. The the one that everybody knows is carbon dioxide. And you just want to remove some of the carbon dioxide so that less of the sun's energy is trapped in the atmosphere and we don't have, we remove the impact of the gases on, on, on warming the atmosphere. Many of us, including me, in fact, most of us, who are in the climate action arena, would say, okay, the most important thing, everybody, is to stop burning stuff. (laughs) Please, can we stop burning stuff? In fact, if we'd got on with that, when scientists like me first said we should do it, we wouldn't be having to talk about greenhouse gas removal, okay? Because we would be able to just gently come down to um, a a level of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, which were the same levels as pre-industrial uh earth and we we know that that's a really good place for us to be you know we can grow things plants and animals that we we rely on and which also occupy the planet with us can survive on and blah 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 but we didn't do that so that's what it is the fact that we are so delayed in removing greenhouse gases from being emitted sorry stop we so slow at stopping emissions that we are going to have to just accept that we're gonna have to remove remove what we've emitted and then the last thing which is perhaps the more long-term and sober thing to reflect on is that there are activities that we undertake as 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 humans um, which will likely i'm not saying that people won't invent stuff and may overcome it but will likely always emit co2 and other greenhouse gases like methane, for example. For example, cows burp, and when they burp, they emit methane, okay? So if you want to have lovely camembert for your dinner this evening, you will have been responsible for quite a lot of burping by uh, daisy in the field or whatever, you know? So you will have been responsible, not responsible directly, but your purchase will have, will have been uh, an ally That burping. So that's what it is, and those are the reasons why we need to do it. Very difficult to find any scientist involved in this area who says that we don't need to do this. They do exist, but I'm sorry, I think they are they are just wrong. Maybe maybe I can say this something controversial. Um, we would all, and I include myself and probably you, Lottie, in this, we would all like to be able to decarbonize society by tomorrow. Okay, by 2025, all oh, right, 2030, then. And if Extinction Rebellion, um, you know, making demands that we decarbonize by 2030, I wish we could. But people aren't well behaved. And even if they were, as I said, we can't do it. There are just really fundamental problems. All the making the things like the wind turbines, the photovoltaics, all the stuff that we need, you have to manufacture, you have to make these, you have to mine stuff and we just don't have enough resource, right? We don't have enough factories, we don't have enough mines to do it all on such a short timescale. I think the magnitude of what we've got to do is huge. And so that means we should have started earlier, we started later, we're not going fast enough. So it's inevitable that we need to be able to remove greenhouse gases. It's not an alternative to mitigation. Right. It's not. It's, we need it in addition.
0: I guess the natural question to follow that is, do you think there's a chance that by developing these new technologies, we could give further ammunition to people who want to de- further delay cutting down emissions?
1: Yeah, this, this is called the moral hazard. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> the moral hazard is is precisely greenhouse gas removal is going to be used as a simple excuse uh, to continue to burn things, right? What I would ask you to think about, however, is um, how long it takes to develop these kinds of approaches. I'll also say that I think the, the nature-based solutions, growing trees and so on and so forth, they're important, but I would not see those as being the main way of removing greenhouse gases there are a whole slew of reasons i think reforesting protecting forests incredibly important we you know species extinctions are going on all over the world they need places where they can live where they can flourish and um be under no illusions the losses of, of of flora and fauna will impact humans we are we are just animals as well we rely on all of this beautiful um, complex biological ecosystems to survive and um, you know we are fools if we think that we've escaped and that it's okay for the planet to become a you know, a, a place where 50% of species just uh, just extinguished for the next decade. It's not. It's not acceptable. It's not wise. So we we should think about reforesting soil as being to do with that, and we'll get collateral benefit. You know, it will soak up CO2, but you know, will not have escaped anybody's attention that there have been huge forest fires in California and in Australia, and um, you know, wood burns everybody. And the world is getting hotter and drier. And that's why we're getting more forest fires. And so this is not a reliable way of removing carbon dioxide. We have to have engineering solutions. And those take between 10 to 15 years from the invention to deployment and to scale, all right? It takes a long time. So we've got to get on with this now. And thankfully, a number of companies have been doing this rather unheralded for many years and then now they're suddenly the the bell of the ball you know oh, I want to play with Climeworks or with carbon engineering or I've probably forgotten somebody now I'm sorry if I've forgotten you but everybody wants to play with these people we need far more um innovation we need we need we need things which will do this better and more cheaply um that they are the, the the front runners but we need others as well so it's not all going to happen tomorrow and it, it cannot be allowed to be used as an excuse to continue to burn stuff. but do, not doing anything would be criminal, right? We need to clean up the mess I'd like you to think about I think the way a good way of thinking about this is as follows uh, the, um, the, the anthropogenic, in other words, the human emissions through activity, not through breathing, of carbon dioxide, is a pollutant. We've been polluting. We just didn't know it for many centuries. We didn't know that burning coal was producing a pollutant called CO2. And all the other pollutants that we emit, and we emit plenty of them, we clean up, right? We are charged for cleaning them up. We, if we're a manufacturer and we put some, I don't know, some cyanide into the water stream, we, <laughs> we are prosecuted and we clean up. This is, in my opinion, this is no different. It's a pollutant. It has consequences, deleterious consequences. And therefore, we will need, if we continue to pollute, we will need to pay for cleaning up. You try and stop polluting. And if you continue, you have to pay.
0: That brings me perfectly onto my next question, which is, do you think that carbon removal companies can really flourish without government intervention? Or do you think that measures like increasing carbon pricing are important?
1: Rather rather than talking about, you know, carbon pricing and so on and so forth, I I would just just say the following. Yes, you know, um, governments, what is, you know, ask yourself, what is a government's main duty? It's become rather obscure over the last decade, exactly what our leaders uh, think that their responsibilities are. And I think it's good to reflect on it, especially for them to reflect on what their responsibilities are. The pandemic has reminded them rather painfully that they're meant to be there to protect us. They're there to protect their citizens. That is their primary duty. Our well-being is in their hands. They have had to react to the pandemic. Although some, say Brazil, have continued to ignore. And, you know, it's a huge human suffering. They're they're, not accepting the reality of what Mother Nature is doing. Climate change is going to be tougher. It's going to be with us for centuries. We've got to deal with this now and over the next 300 years. We're going to have to continue to be good girls and boys. We're going to have to behave in different ways. And they are going to have to set up the methods, the policies whereby that Will happen. It's their responsibility. They're here to protect their citizens. This is not fiction. Climate change is real. I know they only get voted in for four or five years and then they leave. And oh, you know, this is a 20, 50 year problem. Yeah, well, get get your head around it. Uh, Your generation, Lottie, is going to have to hold them to account in a way that my generation has signally failed to do not because we didn't try but i think because um the people in power um basically thought they, that the science was a bit iffy the science is now so obviously not iffy you only i mean what's going on at the moment right america the is it the west and the midwest this is this is just this is the this is not the future this is now it's happening now and you keep on belching out co2 you're just going to add to it They've got to have their feet held to the fire, the politicians, so that they, they, they deal with this in policy. To do something technical, I don't particularly like carbon prices because they're artificial and they have to be kept alive by governments. Governments have to say what the price is. If you treat it as a pollutant, then the price of carbon suddenly just becomes, oh, it's the price of cleaning it up, isn't it? So at the moment, the cost of cleaning up a ton of CO2 by the guys that I was talking about. is about $600 a tonne. So there you go. That's what the carbon price is. Enjoy.
0: Yes, I saw that some oil companies have been selling carbon neutral barrels of oil by offsetting the emissions with some extremely cheap carbon offsets that were like a hundredth of the cost of the barrel of oil.
1: We are going through a violent a socio-economic revolution driven by mother nature. We cannot escape this, right? There is no escape. We have to grapple with this. And when you're going through this kind of revolution, you have to be aware that there'll be snake oil salesmen everywhere. Every time, every 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 one of these socio-economic revolutions brings out both the best and the worst in humanity. And you just need to be aware. You need to be able to spot the... You need to be able to spot the crooks and the angels and please be on the side of the angels.
0: And finally, I'd love to ask you about something I saw in the news recently. The CO2 Removal Hub, a multidisciplinary group of leading academic experts on greenhouse gas removal in the UK. Could you tell us a bit about the hub, uh, what the aims are and what the um, demonstrator projects
1: are? Gosh, okay. So in fact, it's a bit larger than just the demonstrator project. So um myself and a colleague from Oxford lobbied government about three, I think it's three or three and a half years ago, and said to them, look, we're going to have to have greenhouse gas removal technologies, and we need to get on with this because it takes 10 to 15 years before, you know, all that argument. And um remarkably our lobbying worked, and they put put some money on the table for people to apply for. Um, And in fact, it's turned out that there's about one and a half billion is being spent, has been put on the table by the British government. In a rather haphazard way, I wish they'd been more organized and structured, which is what I, Tim Kruger, who's my colleague who did this with me, he and I was trying to encourage the the British government to do. Um, But politics is always a confounding factor, and I just accept that. Anyway, it's a lot of money. Um, or you know, which is being spent in all sorts of different ways around the country, the little bit that we've got is uh, for uh, uh, this this hub, which is called Core CO2RE CO2 Removal Clever A. and we have the job of um, having a sort of coordinating oversight over uh, over a number of demonstrators, um, which have also been funded. I think the total amount of funding was thirty one and a half million which is a lot of money but actually i think an order of magnitude net less than was actually needed not because i wanted the money just i think lots of other people need money to do more stuff anyway they're all nature-based um and there's another set of programs which have got more engineering based that uh, type of stuff which has gone through industry and um, we don't have any formal oversight of but the the government does want us to provide opinion on. So, what is it that we're doing in this in this hub? So that we've got um, a group of us. So it's it's uh, it's led by uh, colleagues at um, Oxford um, under uh, Cameron Hepburn in the Smith School, um, people at Imperial, um, myself included, um, then people at UCL, people at Bristol, Leeds, Manchester, and Edinburgh. So um, these are all people that we all know each other. We're all working and interested in greenhouse gas removal. Um, and we're particularly interested in how do you do this well? And I think you could kind of characterize our, our instincts are as follows, that we know we need to do this. We know that we c- it can be done very badly. We know it can cause all sorts of problems. We're not naive, but it can also be done very well. And that's what we're trying to ensure is that that we do this innovation well and we do it efficiently and effectively because we've only got a short space of time to get this stuff sorted out. If you look at how innovation normally works, it's that some idiot like me says, I've got an idea. And they just start working in a lab doing stuff and then, then they get some money and they do more stuff and it gets bigger and eventually they want to do a demonstration of it. And people come and say, what earth have you done? Who said who said this was a good idea? They spent years of their life and millions of pounds of people's money only to be told that nobody actually wants this. So the idea is to circumvent that and to engage what we will do is work with the best knowledge that we can obtain with the public, with politicians and policymakers. And with business and NGOs, other public organizations, to sit around and to actually have informed discussions right up front about what's going on in order to try and guide the innovation in ways that basically hits a triple bottom line, if you like, from the old language of sustainability or, you know, optimizes its performance for the for the for the public and for uh, its economic sustainability and, and for its environmental impacts. In other words, no, no, oh, I've benefited climate change, but I've actually killed off 500 different species of plant. You know, we don't want any of that sort of stuff. So that's what we're, that's what we're there for. Um, and we we're running for five years and there will be uh, there's money around there for us to catch things that might go wrong and trying to understand why they are going. So we're sort of, we're both creating an architecture for making good decisions. We've also got resource to try and intercept and stop silly things or, or you know, to, to, to plug gaps in knowledge or, or, or inquiry. It should be exciting. I hope that we will be able to do a really good job and that, that there will be good innovation that comes out of this.
0: That sounds like a really exciting project. Thanks for talking a bit about it. That's almost all from us. I've just got two final questions for you, Richard. The first is, if a listener is interested in pursuing a career of developing scientific innovations to help tackle climate change, what advice would you have for them?
1: I think the first thing I'd say is you've got no choice to do, but to do this. If you want to be an inventor and an innovator now, everything has to be low carbon and resilient. So whatever you're doing, you should be doing this. All right, so there's actually there's no choice, but in order to do this, you have to learn some things. You have to learn about how what you're doing, your, your particular product or service. It sits in a system of other value chains. and when you do something, you disrupt these other value chains. and if you're going to do that, they better disrupt it in a way that actually has a net benefit in terms of climate change and not a net um, deficit in terms of climate change. So you need to learn stuff about life cycle analysis, about systems analysis. And then the last part of all of this is we're going through a revolution. And in revolutions, people get hurt. And it's really important that we, we're we intelligent enough now to try and do this so that we don't hurt people. That's an idea called the just transition, which means for example, people who work on, on drilling rigs in the North Sea have meaningful good employment after those drilling rigs are shut down, which they need to be. Um, And that, the just transition, relies on something called sustainable development goals, as you very well know, Lottie. So you need to learn about life cycle analysis, systems analysis, and sustainable development goals to be a worthwhile innovator of the 21st century.
0: And if listeners take away one thing from this episode of IB Green Minds, what would you want it to be?
1: I want them to take away from this that, um, yes, there, is no, there are no choices other than to be involved with doing something about climate change. Um, that can make it sound really grim and miserable. So, what I'd like to take them to take away from this is yeah, this is a huge challenge. This is dangerous. Um, you know, this is, this, this is, they're all the grim things that you hear. It's true. But I'm an eternal optimist. And what I would say is our society and the way that it's run, the way the world runs, is not fair. It's not great. It's not always been like this. It doesn't always need to be like this. We have to go through this revolution. We can, we can think about, okay, as we make these changes to the way that we get our energy, the way that we get our food, the way that we get, you know, everything that we use in our, in our, in our lives, This is an opportunity to make things better and to change the world around us, to just be a better place to live. So be optimistic by getting involved in changing things and change for the better.
0: That's a very positive note to end on. That's all from us. Thank you, Richard, for taking the time to appear on the IB Green Minds podcast.
1: It's been a pleasure.